So our sermon text today is found in John 7, starting with verse uh, 37 going through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Has any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. Father, we will be unable to receive this word unless you soften our hearts, cultivate up the hard stony ground of our hearts and make us able to receive the refreshment of your spirit's living water, that it would soak down deep in us. And your gospel seed can send roots even deeper. God, I pray you would overwhelm us with your love by your spirit, that his life would pour out from us, living in us as a continual source of nourishment. That can't happen unless your spirit does that work in us. So we ask that now as we open the word that we would not be hardened by your glory revealed in it, but we would be softened, melted, and reshaped into the likeness of Christ. Amen. What happens to soil when it doesn't rain for a long time and it's left out under hot sun for days on end? It dries out a lot. If you've ever been to a desert or seen a picture of a desert, you know that nothing can grow in such soil. And it becomes really dry and cracked, almost hard as a rock. 
For anything to grow, it needs water in the soil. But the problem is in desert land, in desert soil, the ground is so hard that even if it does rain, the water just stays on the surface. It pools up on the ground and, and starts to flood away, creating destruction in its path, never soaking into the soil. If life is going to grow, that soil needs to be pre prepared cultivated, tilled up, so that when the rains do come, it can settle down onto and into the soil and drive deep down underneath the surface where dormant seeds are waiting for such sustaining, life-giving water. This softened, broken-up soil is more like a sponge, and it'll take that water deep down so that in the days to come when it doesn't rain, it can draw, the seeds can draw up water from beneath, from below. And the plants don't just need water from the sky, but now the ground itself, saturated from an outpouring of heavenly showers, can become its own continual source of nourishment. This is what we are seeing today in the end of John chapter 7. There's a contrast in two types of people as Jesus prepares for pouring out his spirit like life-giving water. One kind of person is ready to receive that. Another will be like the desert ground where it'll just pool up and wash away, never receiving the life he gives. Those who have soft hearts are thirsty soil, just waiting, waiting for that outpouring so they can soak it up and provide ongoing sustenance. And those who reject Christ have hard, rock-like hearts that repel his nourishment and create further destruction in their lives. Jesus is going to use the imagery here of one of the greatest celebrations in Israel's yearly calendar, and he's going to use that to point to himself as spiritual nourishment for all who are thirsty wanderers. He'll make this claim about his identity and then show us the response of two kinds of people in order to call us to satisfy our spiritual thirst in Christ's life-giving spirit. It's a promise that whoever believes in Jesus will not just have the spirit come down upon them, but the Spirit will well up inside of them, providing continual nourishment from a softened and saturated soil. Now remember, as we get into this, in every text through the book of John, the main idea that John is writing to get us to understand, he says in the end, is that he wants us to know who Jesus is so that we can believe in him and have life in his name. John writes every single one of these stories showing us what belief in Jesus looks like. And he's using different metaphors in each of the stories to look at the same idea. Believe in Jesus. Here's Jesus. Believe in him. Here's Jesus. Don't be like these people who do not believe. And so here John is presenting Jesus as the source of abundant, life-giving water. And belief will come from those who have soft hearts, tilled up soil, ready to soak it up. And unbelief looks like the hard, stony ground that just repels the water and pushes it away. 
So in verses 37 to 39, first, we'll see Jesus stand up in the midst of this celebration and proclaim himself as the source of living waters. And this water is going to run over the soil of the people of Israel. And first, in verses 40 to 44, we see people who are thirsty ground. The feasting crowds are soaking up his teaching, trying to make sense of life as he's describing it. And then, in contrast, the religious leaders reveal their hardened soil hearts in verses 45 to 52. They deflect his living water, and they're only inviting disaster back upon themselves. And John is showing us who is ready to believe and who is not, so that we can know, examine our own hearts. What kind of soil is your own heart? Are you soft and ready to receive his spirit? Or is your heart hard and you're only here because your parents told you to or because you think there might be something here but you don't want it? We must soften our hearts in order to believe in Jesus who alone can satisfy your spiritual thirst by his life-giving spirit. So let's jump back into verses 37 to 39 where Jesus forecasts heavenly showers bringing living waters. Read them again with me, just 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds some commentary here. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now the setting of all of chapter 7 is the Feast of Booths. This is really exciting uh, how this unfolds. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It, it had developed into one of the greatest, probably the greatest celebration in Israel. It followed, this feast followed the end of the year's harvest. They had finished all the work. They put everything in the storehouses. They were done. Now it's the off season and they're waiting for the time to plant their next season's crop. And in between, they have this feast to both look back and remember what God has provided and look forward knowing that harvest is only going to come through God. And there's the, the whole festival is set up to remind them of God's provision, just like he provided that for them in, in the wandering through the wilderness. Back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And so... They have all of these memories that they're trying to bring back to life in this feast, reminding them of when they lived in tents in the desert, and they ate bread from heaven, and they drank water that flowed out of a rock, and they wandered through the darkness, finding their way by following this giant pillar of fire. And so every year for an entire week, they reenacted this experience. Everyone would move out of their homes and build a little tent in front of their house or outside the city. And they lived in that for the whole week, just living off of what God had provided for them before. And then at the beginning of the festival, the priests would carry these large basins down the hill to the pool of Siloam. 
and this big ritual, they would fill it, fill these basins up and carry them all the way back up the mountain to the temple where all of Israel is singing with them psalms 113 to 118, the halal songs, praising God for his victory in their lives. And then when they arrived at the top, they would carry this water around the, the altar. And they had these these jugs, these stone jugs sitting on the altar, and there was a little hole in the bottom. So when they started pouring water in, the water would come out of the hole, reminding them that God is providing for them water in the wilderness. And then every evening, and this is more relevant for next week, but it's part of the scene, the priests would march up the temple stairs again, holding torches in their hand, singing the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms reminding them of coming up the mountain into God's presence. And they carry their torches and light these enormous menorahs, four of them, one at each corner of the temple. And when those things were lit, they said it would make the entire temple glow in the night. It was so bright, it would light up the whole city, reminding them of that pillar of fire that would come out of the, tem out of the tabernacle and lead them through the wilderness. And then on the last day, this feast reached its amazing climax. They would take all the rest of the water and just dump it on the altar, dump it in those jugs so they would overflow and the water come pouring out over the altar and down the steps in front of the temple among all the people worshiping and singing, reminding them of God's abundant provision to bring water out of the rock in the wilderness. And it's at that moment in the midst of that celebration of everyone singing and dancing and praising God for his provision, that Jesus stands up and proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's a powerful statement. Because they knew this isn't just a simple offering of some water. There's a lot of it right in front of us. They knew God was the one who provided the water out of the rock. Now Jesus is saying, I am the one who provides water from rocks. I am the one who will satisfy your thirst. The apostle Paul looked back on this a little later, and he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.4, all those Old Testament believers, when they were faithful to follow God and trust him to provide water from the rock, they weren't drinking from a rock. Paul says that rock was Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he clarifies in verse 38 that he's calling them to believe in him. Just as they trusted Yahweh to take care of them in the wilderness, to bring miraculous life provision out of the rock, they should trust him to lead them, to care for them, to bring them to the promised land. He says, if anyone believes in him, scripture promises out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not just out of a rock now, but Jesus will pour that water onto you so it'll pour out of you. This isn't an exact quote from anywhere in the Old Testament, but it's kind of a common pro promise throughout, especially in Isaiah that God was going to pour out his spirit on his people, like in Joel 2 or Isaiah 44 verse 3. 
And it would be poured out in such a way, it would be like dry land becoming springs of water, Isaiah says in chapter 41, verse 18. And there would be rivers in the desert, Isaiah 43, 19. And people's souls, people's own souls would be the source of springs of living water, Isaiah 58, 11. So he's saying not only is Jesus the source of this water, but he'll put his spirit in his people in such a way that they now too will become springs of life-giving water to those around them. That water will go deep into their softened soil and provide nourishment to them. It's this cultivated soil that holds water. And provides that continuous refreshment, even when the rains aren't falling. So John pauses here and adds some commentary to Jesus' teaching in verse 39. It's an an important clarification. He's explaining first that what's obvious to us now much later, that Jesus is talking about his Holy Spirit. It's not literal water. He's talking about his spirit. And John is writing long after Jesus' death and resurrection, after Jesus ascended to heaven, after he's poured out his spirit, John's already experienced this. He's had, God, he saw Jesus die and rise from the dead. He saw Jesus go up into the cloud. He waited a little while and the spirit came upon them and transformed his life. Now he lives with that living water flowing inside of him. And he looks back on this moment and he writes, As he writes, and he importantly notes that this thing has not happened yet when Jesus is talking. Certainly throughout Old Testament history, the Holy Spirit has come down on many people and accomplished mighty things. Moses himself did great things by the Spirit's power. I think of like in Judges, Gideon and Samson, they were, had the Spirit come upon them to do some mighty things, fight in battles. Or Elijah and Elisha, Incredible miracles done in their life. Elisha had a double portion of God's spirit upon him. Even King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm 51 and he says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. That's, that was their experience. The spirit coming down, but sometimes leaving. The spirit did not dwell in his people, providing this continuous source of life from within until after Jesus' death. His resurrection and ascension, or John says, when he was glorified. So, Jesus first needed to cleanse his people. If he's going to fill his people with their sin, he needed to cleanse them by his own blood. He needed to remove the poisons in the soil of our heart that prevent, that choke life out from us. We need to wash our sinfulness away from the river of life that flowed from his side as he hung on the cross. And then he rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, in his ascension, scattering gospel seeds all over the earth so that when he sat on his throne and sends out his spirit, the spirit will just pour out on this softened soil and germinate that gospel seed and bring forth life in all who believe. But all that depends upon the condition of the soil of your heart. Are we soft, cultivated soil that's thirsty for this outpouring? Verses 40 to 44 show us 
a crowd of people who are like thirsty ground. Let's read those again. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, oh, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So we're looking at these crowds now as thirsty ground, and it's important to remember what John just said. The spirit had not yet been given. Jesus has not died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. So we're not looking at these people as an example of faith who have received salvation. They've been filled with the spirit. They're simply dry but thirsty ground, ready to receive life. The difficult circumstances in their lives have not hardened them, but only softened their hearts. God has used the difficulty in their life to till up the soil of their hearts, not crust them over. And we'll see that they are still quite ignorant. They're confused. They're still divided. They're hesitant. Just like Jesus' disciples, the 12 that were following him. We're going to see in the book of Acts a change when they finally receive the Spirit. They understand Jesus' death and resurrection. They become bold in a clear understanding that all of Scripture points to Jesus, his perfect life, his sin-bearing death, his victorious resurrection, his reign over all things. When they grasp that and they have the Spirit living inside of them, then they unify into one body. They're zealous to go out and confront idols and proclaim life in Christ. They will become rivers of living water. Right now, in this scene, we're just looking at people who are ready for that to happen. Verse 40 says that as soon as some people heard Jesus make this connection between this water flowing out of the temple and him being the source of life, they knew something big was happening. Somehow, this is the fulfillment of a lot of stuff that we've been expecting a lot of things that scripture's been pointing to, a lot of the things that we've been longing for. And so some people jump right in. Just like after he fed the 5,000, this guy's the greater prophet than Moses. I'm so excited about what's going to happen next. And then others go further in verse 41 and say, I think this is the Christ. The, the Messiah, the seed of David, the one who's going to be victorious over our enemies and restore Jerusalem to glory. They see all these connections, they, but they're still struggling to find out how they fit together. Because it's quite miraculous to read through this whole thing and realize all of the scenes, all of the characters, the whole story Everything, all the images are pointing to one guy, to Jesus. The people so struggled with how all of that could fit together in one person. Many people came up with multiple fulfillments. Like we would have a, a priest-like 
Savior, and then over, maybe we would later have a prophet-like guy, and then after that, there would be the righteous, victorious king, Savior, the Messiah. The confusion continues in verse 42. They're, they're exploring, they're asking questions. They knew the king was supposed to be born in the line of David, in the town of Bethlehem. It's what Micah told us. And all they knew about Jesus was that he just came here from Galilee. So these aren't lining up. They don't fit together. They're, they're ignorant. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We saw some of this ignorance last week in verse 27. Jake was explaining how some thought the Messiah would just be kind of unknown until the last minute and he would come out of nowhere. Whoa, here he is. They think that they know who Jesus is and he just, that guy is not fitting their expectations. But still, something's there. They might not understand how it all fits, but you know when he talks, his teaching is unlike any we've ever heard. His power, his authority is more than we've ever seen. His love and compassion is more tender than any we've ever experienced. That's making them certain that God is acting here somehow. They're thirsty ground, wanting to know more, wanting to figure it out, wanting to see what else Jesus will do. We sometimes feel like we're a really bad person if we don't understand. We're not a very good Christian if we have some doubt or if, if we're not very knowledgeable. That's not proof of a hard or soft heart. What you do with that is proof of the softness of your heart, if you're ready to receive his spirit. Lack of knowledge should lead you, if you have a soft heart, to thirst for more, to ask more questions, to be like dry ground thirsty for rain. Now, because they didn't understand, there was some division among them, says verse 43. Ignorance of truth will cause division. The more we study the word, the more we understand who Jesus is and study theology as some do on Sunday nights, the more it unifies us together in a clear, agreed upon picture of who Jesus is that motivates us to work together. But ignorance causes division as we make assumptions. And then some came to arrest him based on assumptions. Verse 44, though, tells us no one could lay hands on him. It's like there's some invisible force holding them back, but also keeping them gripped by him. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to see more. They wanted to know more. Jesus had just proclaimed he's the source of life, the high point of our entire year. He just claimed to be that all in himself. Wow. It's just what we've wanted. They're so ready to soak up more of Jesus that they just want to linger in the moment. But there were others who wanted him gone, wanted nothing more to do with him. They're like that sun-baked desert ground. Verses 45 to 52 reveal these priests and Pharisees are hardened soil repelling Christ's life-giving water. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, 
No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The chief priests and Pharisees, they represent the religious ruling class. Sometimes you hear it called the Sanhedrin. They're the ones in charge of making sure everyone follows the law. They're the experts in the law. They make judgments about what's right and wrong, right and wrong teaching, right and wrong behavior. They have this great and important responsibility of making sure the nation of Israel follows the law precisely because when that doesn't happen, they get exiled. So they don't want that to happen again. That's bad news. They have this great responsibility to help them follow God's law and not break God's commands. But we see throughout this interaction in Jesus' response, in response to Jesus' teaching, that they are ironic, very ironically, they reveal themselves to be quite ignorant of God's law themselves. In verse 24, Jesus had told them, judge righteous judgment, judge rightly, use the scriptures and judge everything in light of that. And they think, oh yeah, we are doing that. And so in verse 32, they send officers to go arrest Jesus. They have judged wrongly. They didn't really want a private meeting with Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him, to put an end to his teaching. They understood Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh. They're not interested in a trial, just judgment. They're not going to ask more questions. They should be figuring out, how is this possible? Are we understanding you right? Is this where you're really from? They just want to put an end to him. So when the officers returned without Jesus, they were furious. The officers, you guys had one job to do and you failed. When the Pharisees questioned, why didn't you bring him to us? It shows that they are viewing themselves as the ultimate authority. They're placing themselves above God. And they're going to judge them for crossing them, for disobeying their orders. Ironically, they think they're going to give these guys a little chance to repent. But in their softness, in their delay, their willingness to ask questions and linger, God is giving these guys a chance to repent. He's turning it on their heads. The officers had recognized something in Jesus' teaching that captivated their heart. And they knew that there was something wrong with what those Pharisees were asking them to do. Sometimes it's right to refuse to follow orders. Later on in church history and after the Reformation, this doctrine of the lesser magistrate became a little more solidified. The idea being that those with lesser authority have not just the option, but the responsibility to stand against higher authorities and keep the law when their superiors refuse to do so. The officers in this story show themselves to be more wise according to God's law than these supposed experts. They are shining glory 
back into the situation. But that glory, as bright and hot as it is, is only baking their hearts and hardening them even more. The Pharisees accused the officers in verse 47 of being deceived. Jake tried, er, explained earlier in chapter 7 that they tried to dismiss Jesus by just saying, he's a, a crazy lunatic. He's a compulsive liar. You, don't, you can't trust him. But both of those were just obvious dismissals, deflections of their own unwillingness to submit to him as a commanding Lord. The Pharisees just make all of these fallacious appeals to authority, ad hominem attacks, fallacy, genetic fallacies. They're, they're arguing in all the wrong ways. Instead of engaging with the content of who Jesus is and what he is teaching, they simply say, oh, those crowds, they're so dumb and dirty. They wouldn't know truth if it was right in front of them. You want to be our smart people, important people like us. We don't follow Jesus. Do you want to be like them? Ugh. Or do you want to be like us? We're the cool guys. You see that same peer pressure all the time today. Nobody debates content in order to discern truth. We make all these accusations and label people and try to shame others on, into our side. You don't want to be like those people, right? Even our leaders, our supposed experts in all kinds of fields in this world, just like to point out how much smarter and more important they are than us common people. But think about how messed up that perspective is. These guys were supposed to be the leaders of Israel. Their job is to care for God's people, to teach them, to lead them in righteousness. But they've got such disdain for the crowd of people who are God's own sheep. And they're supposed to be shepherding them. But they can't stand being around them. They despise them. They believe that this crowd can't do anything or say anything right. Oh, those people are part of the problem keeping our nation from being wonderful. In reality, a floundering nation or an organization is more often the result of prideful leaders who despise their own people. By despising the sheep, they're showing themselves to be bad shepherds. They're proving themselves disqualified as leaders. These guys' spiritual lives are drier than a desert. Except for one guy, though. They asked in verse 48... Are there any Pharisees that believe in this guy? Thinking the answer is going to be no. They didn't know back in chapter 3 that Nicodemus had once visited him and asked him a ton of questions, seemed as eager as the crowds to learn more. John kind of drops Nicodemus' name here like a subtle answer to their question. Yeah, actually, there is one guy, Nicodemus. He's a believer. He's one of them. Now, he doesn't have definitive answers. We saw his ignorance in chapter 3. Who does have definitive answers? There's a lot to understand here. But at least Nicodemus shows himself to be wise according to the law. He asks a rhetorical question, for, a question for the sake of argument in verse 51, reminding these experts in the law that the law requires before pronouncing judgment that they ask questions. They seek evidence. They invite witnesses. 
Nicodemus isn't really taking sides. He's just carefully bringing God's truth into the situation and allowing more space to investigate Jesus' claims. He's just like the thirsty crowds. Doesn't quite understand, but he's knowledgeable in the law, captivated enough by Jesus' teaching that he's willing to receive more. His heart is cultivated soil, but not the rest of the Pharisees. They're so hardened. They reject wisdom from the law that they claim to follow. And they're continuing to make these fallacious arguments, suggesting that just because Jesus and Nicodemus seem to be from Galilee, that it's wrong. As though where you're from determines truth. It's like atheists today saying, well, you're just a Christian because you grew up in the United States. So? That doesn't say anything about whether it's true or not. They think that they can just shame Nicodemus into compliance by calling him names, associating him with a group of people they don't like. In many ways, this leadership class is proving themselves to be more ignorant and more accursed than those crowds that they despise, that they hold in such contempt. Ironically, they even make the same ignorant claims about Jesus' origin, about where he's from. But they don't do it out of this innocent lack of knowledge, but purposeful rejection of Christ. If they simply followed Nicodemus' suggestion, they would know Jesus is from Bethlehem as the scriptures foretold. And, as we'll see next week, there is some indication from scripture that the Messiah will come down from Galilee to, see, to bring them light. But they're so hardened they're rejecting the rains falling from heaven, and now these rains are accumulating as this growing flood of judgment about to come upon them. So what does such a vivid story have to teach us today? We see in, these, in this contrast of two types of soils a warning for us. Which type are you? Is your heart soft, ready, and eager to receive the truth? Even if it seems a bit more confusing, you want more? If so, even when you don't understand, you'll linger, you'll hang out, you'll return seeking more answers from Jesus. And if you seek him, he promises that you will find him. He will satisfy your thirst by pouring out his spirit into your heart, springing up life from within you. And when you believe in Jesus, that means you're trusting him for answers. It doesn't mean you have it figured out. You're just coming back to him for more. That he is the source of life. And trusting he'll well up in you that life. Which then will look like a passion for God. A delight in his word. A love for all of his people. Hatred of sin in my heart. And joy when I'm sorrowful. And confidence in his promises when I face difficulty. That's what his life, death, and resurrection purchased for us. So stay thirsty. Believe in him, and he will satisfy your spiritual thirst with his life-giving spirit. The Pharisees, though, are a warning to those who will continue to push him away. His mercy only extends so far. The longer you go without drinking this water the harder your soil will get until it bakes over. Every day he gives you, every time you hear his word, every time you experience his love, if you don't receive it, it will harden your heart further. 
Don't let this glory shining on you bake the crust around your heart, making it impenetrable. We soften your heart and let the refreshment soak into the cracks and overwhelm your soul. Finally, this story also gives us wisdom on how to engage an unbelieving world. There are lots of people out there ready and eager to receive this truth. They have soft hearts. There are some who are hard and who will only deflect the truth to puff up their own pride, but the soft-hearted people are the refugees from the world that are beat up by the world. They don't want it anymore. They just don't know where to go. The hard, the hard experiences have softened their hearts. They might not know immediately what the gospel offers. They might not be able to put all of it together. These things are going to take time. They might not be able to receive his heavenly outpouring just yet. But they are soft and ready to listen and receive his truth. And so we must be gentle and patient and compassionate and consistent to bring the truth and hold them near, trusting that God will be the one to pour out his spirit of life from you into them. And then there are the activists, the false prophets. They think they know all they need to know, and they'll, but they'll prove their ignorance of God's truth. They reject Christ and they'll reject his truth from you too. They offer the world all kinds of false gospel promises of peace and safety if you just do it their way. They love to boast of their higher intellect and their superior righteousness and their greater authority. They try to make you fawn over the letters that are after their name and their ability to love your neighbors better than you do and how they're going to fall on the right side of history. But none of those self-righteous proclamations matter. Don't be caught up in those influencers who love to cl claim superior wisdom and compassion. What matters is whether their claims line up with truth, with God's word. God will expose their folly, so don't waste your time engaging with them. Call them out, confront them, simply to proclaim refuge in Christ for those who are in the path of their destruction. To know the difference doesn't require any skill other than knowing Christ in his word and among his people. When you grow in that, he will guide you on the right path. You will know from the, the spirit welling up inside of you what you ought to say. And just as Jesus promised, that spirit will flow out of your heart and bring life-giving water to the refugees, the soft-hearted ones who just are hungry and thirsty for the life-giving spirit in Christ, the one who can satisfy their souls. Let's pray. God, I pray that as you poured yourself more into me this week, and now you pour yourself out of me and into the hearts of my beloved church family, that you would fill their hearts so that they can become life-giving springs in the places they will go this week. They will pour out your spirit's love towards their children into their neighbors, into their coworkers, into the people in the marketplaces and on the internet. They will stand firm against false promises and they will offer hope to those who are ready for rescue. Just as you have done for us, God, show yourself mighty 
to sustain us in this wilderness and lead us home with Christ. Amen.